Well, good morning. Great to see you today. Happy Memorial Weekend. Many years ago, I took a particularly memorable stroll down the ancient cobblestones of an avenue in what once had become or been one of the most significant cities of the ancient world. It was in modern-day Turkey on the shores of the Mediterranean. And I vividly remember as I walked down this huge avenue, uh, looking over here to my left and seeing these ruins, the ruins of what had once been absolutely stunning, luxurious townhomes. And I know that because the tour guide that took us in there uh, showed us some parts of the floors that had been exposed. And each and every one of these incredible apartments had these magnificent multicolored mosaics on their floor. It was just a hint at the splendor of what these residences had once been like. And, and over here on the right, there were these arcades that had been um, the entrances to, to shops. And the shops had been uh, the trendiest stores in the ancient Roman Empire. They, they had been places that, that people saved up. And when they got any kind of vacation time, so to speak, they would they would travel to this place. It was like the magnificent mile of the ancient world. And just to see what was sold in there, maybe buy something in one of these incredible shops. And just next door to that, there was, there was the ruins of, a, of an ancient spa. It was a spa that was so amazingly cushy that, that if you went in and you sat down on the toilet, in the dead of winter, you were fine because they had heated toilet seats. <laughs> I sat down there, but they weren't heated in my time. Uh, and, and just further on down was an, a massive amphitheater, an incredible stadium uh, uh, to rival a lot of the kinds of, of buildings and constructions of that kind today. And I remember going down that avenue and, and, and looking up at this facade of this ornately painted uh, structure that you can see in the picture there that... Uh, was the front end of what had been one of the most fabulous libraries in all of antiquity, housing the genius of civilization. And, and as we walked along these cobblestones, my, my imagination, I've got a fertile one, it, it, it began to take over. And it suddenly, in my mind's eye, seemed like the the, the ruins were reassembling themselves and becoming out of the mists of time, these multi-leveled balconied buildings with fabric hanging off the balustrades and music floating out from the openings and the windows there. I, I, could, I could suddenly see the street filled with people in brightly colored robes as they milled about going on their business for the day or popping into the shops or deftly stepping aside to avoid one of the carts laden with produce coming down the, the street. I could, I could almost smell the, the, the fragrance of, of meat cooking on the grills of the food vendors in the street, and I could hear the, the shouts of children playing, and I could... I could, I could Hear the, the vendors hawking their wares and the roar of the crowd out in the amphitheater down the street, responding to who knows what exciting thing going on there. And all of a sudden, in the mists of time, I felt like I was standing there in first century Ephesus, the greatest city of Turkey and the second city of the ancient world, second only to Rome. 
in all of its glory. Cleopatra had made her home in Ephesus. Alexander the Great chose Ephesus to retire in. Mary, the mother of Jesus, tradition holds, was taken by the Apostle John to make this her final home on this earth. And the Apostle Paul lived there. From A.D. 54 to 57, Paul made Ephesus his, his residence. He knew that city the way you know Chicago. He loved its people. He cared for their future. He dreamed for their best. And it had to have been unbelievably difficult for them to, to walk down this street, which he had walked down. He had disembarked, the scriptures say, from a boat over there in the harbor. He had walked up the street past the great amphitheater. He'd been right where I was standing. And he'd seen the literal faces of the people that I was just dreaming about. And he had to have felt a certain measure of pain in his heart because in his heart, Paul knew these people were dead. Oh, they looked great. They surely were moving around, dressed in some of the greatest finery of that age. But in the ways that counted most, they were, in a sense, the walking dead. The walking dead. There was a terrible doom at work in their life, and they did not know it. They were dying inside, and they didn't understand it. And that had been his mission, to try and reach them before the end came for them. Now, we know that this picture of the Ephesians as among the walking dead was true in two important senses. One, in a purely physical sense. One of the horrible secrets that, that almost nobody in that time understood as they went about their life in that city was that literally underneath their feet, death was on the move. You see, the, the fabulous state-of-the-art plumbing system the Romans had put in to the city to provide the bathing water and the drinking water of the city had been fabricated with lead pipes. And the lead was leaching out of those pipes into the drinking water supply and the bathing supply. And that lead was beginning to do its work on the bodies of the Ephesians. It, it was literally causing brain damage and, and, and creating all kinds of other issues in those people. And years later, it would become a widely published scandal, what had gone on in Ephesus, much like that whole story you must have probably followed in Flint, Michigan, where the water, water was so tainted. But, but the, the physical drinking water w w was second only to the more significant problem that the Ephesians had with their spiritual water supply, in a sense. As Tracy mentioned to us last week, Ephesus was, was really riding on the economic, social, and religious power of a massive religious cult called the cult of Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called, the goddess Artemis, the god of war. Uh, 
everything in the city, in a sense, was tied in somehow with that cult, which was alongside of the shopping district, one of the major reasons why people came to that particular port city. And so whole business enterprises were tied into the, to the, to the temple of Diana. There were huge fortunes being made around ritual prostitution, uh, around um, the selling of sacrificial animals and, um, and the manufacture and the, uh, the marketing of these silver icons that were the equivalent of saying, I was there, I was there in Ephesus, that you take home and, and you'd give to your friends to show that you had been in this amazing city. And because of these major industries that were going on, all tied into the, to the cult of, of Diana, all of these businesses were pumping out a, a steady stream of marketing information. Uh, in fact, you can go back, you can still see in Ephesus today, you can see the signs down by the harbor pointing you towards the brothels and toward the places where the ritual prostitution was going on. And, and there was this steady stream of messages being pumped through all the pipes of the culture of that particular city, trying to increase people's desire for, 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 for silver, for power, sex, celebrity, all of the common idols of, of misplaced worship, all the things that, that, get, that get presented to us, that there's the things that will solve what we lack, that will give us the meaning and the, the filling that we're looking for in this life. All of this is being pumped into people's hearts, is starting to disfigure and decay their thinking, and the people in that society are increasingly turning in upon themselves and against other people and away from God altogether. What I wonder would you say is the quality of your spiritual, of our spiritual water supply these days. What are the messages? What, what, are, the, what are the visions of value that are being pumped through the pipes of our time towards you and me and our kids and our friends and the world around us? And how, how do you see it affecting our spiritual health? How how is this affecting our moral vision, our personal character, our ability to cohere as a people, to resolve our conflicts, to, to address the great opportunities and needs of our world? How is that water supply coming into our homes and everywhere today working on us? Well, imprisoned in far-off Rome, the Apostle Paul is, is deeply concerned for the people in Ephesus. As I said to you before, he loves these people. He, he deeply cares for these people. And he's worried that even the church, even the followers of Jesus that he had helped to pull together and shape in that particular community might be drinking bad water, might be soaking in a bit too much of this world around them and to the point where it was corrupting them. And, and, and taking away from them the great potential that life in Christ offered to them. And, and so Paul writes the very first part of this brilliant letter to, to try and remind the disciples of, of all that God had done for them and, and all that God wanted to do through them in the world for the sake of their health and the health of all of the of the community round about them. And so he says this, as for you, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Let me just remind you, he says, there was a time when you were dead. You were the walking dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient, which is say, those who have turned away from God and made their own agenda, number one. You were like that, he says. Now, it's very likely that most of the people to whom these letters are coming, much less the people in this community around it, would have been sort of puzzled by that assessment of them. Because when they looked at themselves in the mirror, they did not see zombies. They, they did not see people that had major spiritual problems. And if you've ever watched a, a, a TV show or a movie about zombies, raise your hand if you've ever seen a zombie flick. Okay? Then you know that self-awareness is not the zombie's greatest quality. Why is that? Because they're hungry because they're thirsty, because of their appetites. Their appetites are dominating in a zombie's life. It's what drives them forward without a lot of self-reflection. It's what glazes them as they simply go about trying to, to fill themselves up. And we were like that once, says Paul to the Ephesians. All of us, I quote, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. How many of you, I wonder, can remember a time in your life where you were driven by your cravings, where, where you were basically run by your obsessive, obsessive compulsive, you know, restless feeling that I have to have this. I have to have the approval of, of that kid at school. I, I, have to ha I have to be loved and recognized. I need to be praised more. I, I gotta have that thing. I just want that thing so much. I just, how many of you can remember a time when you're, you're craving for sex or power or, or stuff or, or position or recognition just sort of drove you in, in life and you look back on that now and you say, oh gosh, that was not my best moment. I mean, I did things during those days I'm not pleased with. And there was collateral damage and I injured myself. How many of you know what it's like to kind of walk that way, uh, that zombie way through life? And the weird thing about this is that sometimes when self-awareness does begin to rise up. And sometimes somebody says something to us about the way we're living and, we, and it starts to get into us or maybe we get a bolt of inspiration. God brings us a moment of conviction. Man, are the defenses against that strong or what? I, I mean, I know how it works for me in my life. Uh, it, it, it's amazing how in those moments I just entirely switch towards what I call the, the, the it's relative mindset. You know, I, I, I may have been like flesh falling off my face and bro bones protruding out through my, my skin, sort of zombie images here, right? I may be like that, but, but in those particular moments, somebody points out my problems, I think, well, thank goodness, I'm not as bad as that zombie. 
I mean, thank goodness my eyeballs aren't falling out or anything. Or I don't have blood on my hands or I haven't killed anybody or I haven't committed adultery or I haven't stolen or I haven't lied or I haven't exaggerated. I haven't, I haven't done those things much or lately or deeply. This is how sin poisoning works. It doesn't happen all at once. I mean, it's just a little bit of lead, a little more, until we're brain damaged. And we don't know it because everybody around us is also brain damaged. And, and we think, uh, uh, I'm sure that God is looking at me and going, way to go. You are living exactly how I intended. You are so impressive. I mean, the way you think, the way you relate to others, the way you manage resources, perfect. Perfect. And so it's so difficult for us, in, even in our greatest moments of clarity, to, to think that God might see us as stunningly selfish, as shockingly hard-hearted, as stupidly wasteful, and like the rest, Paul says, by nature deserving of wrath. It's hard to believe that, that he could see us by nature as deserving of, of, of wrath, which is Bible code for reaping the consequences of our actions, for, for coming to a bad end. On May 18th um, of this year, um, a man named Richard from Wheaton uh, reaped some consequences and came to a bad end. You might have seen his, his story. It was in the news. Uh, I, Richard was a manager for uh, the Heineken Beer Company. I know, I know you've never heard of the Heineken Beer Company, but it's a pretty large, prosperous establishment. And he, uh, he was also a rabid Cubs fan. And so on the 18th, he's at Wrigley Field, and uh, he stays to the bitter end of the game. And, and at 11 o'clock at night, which is about 45 minutes after the game is, has ended, uh, Richard, uh, who's been seated, seated in the upper decks, comes down the stairs uh, towards the exits, still on the upper deck, and uh, leans against a railing with a red cup in his hand, and goes over. Um, he strikes his head. Uh, he's rushed to the hospital, and he, and he dies there. At what point do you suppose Richard was in trouble? Was it when he was in the ER with the pressure building in his head? Was, was that sort of, you could say, now, now he's in trouble there. Was it at the moment his head hit in that stadium? Was it, was it earlier on when he toppled over the rail? Was that the moment when, boy, he was in, you could say he was in trouble? Was it before that when he lost his balance? Was it earlier on when he reached for the red cup in the first place? Or, or was it 
the steps that he took or didn't take on the long journey that led up to that moment around 11 p.m. on May 18th. When was he in trouble? I don't know. I just mainly feel sad for Richard and I grieve for his family and his friends. But I'm compelled to say to myself as well as to you, there is an arc to our lives. There is a path that we're on, all of us. And it's the little decisions that we make and it's the, it's the leanings that become habitual in our life It's the investments that we pour ourselves into. It's the convictions that we set our compass by. It's the uh, relationships that we develop, the company we keep, the things that we take into our minds and our bodies that all help to plot out a certain course for our life. And, And that course will lead us to greater life in all of its fullness, the abundant life that Jesus talked about or it will lead us to death. What are the decisions that determine the direction that result in the destiny of your life and of my life? What Paul says, in effect, to the um, Ephesians, and by extension to believers everywhere, is that none of us are immune to the poisoning effects of the water being pumped at us by the dominant culture of our city. None of us are, and I don't care how many times we go to church, we're still exposed to that particular water supply. And we've all, in a sense, got the red cup in our hand. Or we take it up at various times. Uh, We take in what's being offered, we've drunk uh, in blatant terms, kind of, we've drunk the water of sin, we've lost our balance, and all of us, certainly from the point of view of God, ha- have fallen. In God's eyes, Paul tells us, every one of us went over the railing. Every one of us in this room, and, and, and listening to the sound of my voice, went over the railing, and we were headed towards a moment when the full impact of the vector of our lives, our plunge into sin, would bring about a terrible end for us. That was it. That was going to be our future. But, says Paul, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but here's the gospel, here's the good news. Because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, I want you to think about this with me because this, if we don't get the gospel, we don't get Christianity, and And that's not me poking at you. That's me reminding myself, it is so easy to forget what makes the message of Christianity so crucial for our planet and for our own individual lives. 
And so let me just try and put it in, in more vivid terms for you, uh, in more contemporary terms for you. I just want you to imagine we're there at Wrigley Field, okay? And it's, and it's you or it's me coming down the steps in the upper deck. And in just about a nanosecond, we're going over. I want you to imagine this. Imagine that somewhere below the upper deck from which that Wheaton man tumbled, the owner of Wrigley Field had placed a great circus net. Or, 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 or a different way of looking at it. Imagine the owner is there and he is strapped onto his back one of those jet packs I've always wished I could get. I'm, I'm trusting they're going to invent some consumer versions of this soon. I'm counting on it. Please. Tesla, do this. So he's there, and he's looking up, and he's just scanning the, the railing, the, the owner is. Because he's been to enough games, he knows how some of the fans get. He, he knows what stupid things, what, what savage things, what... what what really selfish things some people do. Some things they do even worthy of wrath, even worthy of letting them fall to their own consequences. He's, he's seen so much of this. But, but, but imagine that as Richard or you or I fell over the railing, it was not that person's nature or that person's works, but the owner's grace and kindness that was the defining circumstance. It was who the owner was that mattered most. And, and, and imagine that the net was there or the owner flew up and caught Richard in his arms. And imagine that Richard was not only spared from the destruction that his vector in life merited. Imagine that the owner lifted Richard up above the railing. And on up beyond that, and took him all the way up to the finest seat in the house, and gave him a lifetime box seat with the owner right beside him, always. And imagine that kind of turnaround. Because this, says Paul, is what God did for you and for me. This is what he's done out of his great love for you and me. We were dead in our transgressions, says Paul, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, but the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the key part I want you to remember. Who has what? Blessed us 
who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If there is one particular theme that runs through the first three chapters of the letter of the book of, or letter of, to the church at Ephesus, it's this. And I want you to really stay with me for this last part. This is the big theme of these opening uh, chapters. God has blessed you. Drink that in. God has blessed you. Please drink that in, Paul is saying. And in the verses that follow, if you go back and look in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, you'll see that Paul goes on to try and describe the various ways that God has blessed us. And I'll just call out two or three of these significant ways that he has blessed us. First of all, God has chosen you and adopted you into his family. Uh, God has, has chosen you. Uh, uh, you know, all the people coming into the, into the stadium, the owner looked out and said, I, I, I want you, Milo. I, I want you to come and be with me. I, he's called us out by name and chosen us to draw us into his, his family, the, the owner's family. And, and, and you can tell he did that because you're, he, you're here today. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are a lot of people who aren't here today or in any church, anywhere. Somehow they didn't get touched in a way yet. We want them to be touched. It's part of the mission of our church to help more and more people find their way into that family. But you have been included in that family. And what that means is that you never need to ever worry about whether you've got value, whether anybody sees you or notices you or thinks well of you. The greatest intelligence in the universe, the owner himself, so loves you that he picked you to be part of his eternal family. And you'll have that family wherever you go in life. We are here for you today. We are here for you today. So go out there and live your life with even more confidence. Secondly, Paul challenges us to remember that God has blessed us by forgiving our sins. God has forgiven our sins. And what that means is that that thing that you did that you're ashamed of, that thing that you know you did that if it was like put up on the screen in front of everybody, we, the videotape got rolled, you would just like, you'd run out. You, you just wouldn't want anybody to know about this. Or that, that list of long things that you know you didn't do, that you wish you had done when there was such an opportunity to do the right thing or the helpful thing or the good thing in your family or your workplace or your friendship circle, and you just, you just didn't do it. You were driven by your cravings or you were distracted or you were afraid. That thing has been forgiven. All of this has been forgiven. The blood of Christ has washed that away. You have a clean slate if you come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. You can let go of yesterday. You can lean into the marvelous possibilities of today because his grace is sufficient for you. And you can go in peace. You can. It's a new day. Finally, Paul wants you to know that God has made you a part of his marvelous plan. Go back and read that for yourself in Ephesians 1. He has revealed to us the mystery of his marvelous plan. What's the plan? He's going to fix it. 
I keep drinking from the pipes of CNN and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and other places. And, and I'll tell you something, I'm just getting ill, physically ill, because it just seems so bad. It seems so hopeless. It seems like it's never going to come together. Paul says, no, 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 no. This is what you need to drink in. He has a plan to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he is going to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under Jesus Christ, he says in Ephesians 1. He's given to you his Holy Spirit to empower you to live in the midst of these troubled times in a fresh and hopeful and creative way. He has selected you to reflect something of the glory of his character to the people that you meet. You never, never need to wonder again, what's my job? What's my purpose in life? Because you know he's told you, God's told you, you're a bearer of his light, his love, his laughter. Uh, you're a bearer of these things to everyone you meet wherever you go until he makes all things new again. That's your job description. That's mine. This is why Paul writes elsewhere in this letter, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In other words, he's saying, I just wish you could take this in. Take him in. This is why he says elsewhere, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. This again is what Paul is trying to get at when he states, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God himself. Again and again, Paul is crying out with incredible intensity to the Ephesians and by extension to us, God has blessed you. Oh, he has so blessed you. I wish you would understand. I wish you would take, I wish you would just drink it in. Please drink this in. Why is it so important to drink it in? Because if you don't drink this good water, often you will get thirsty. You will reach for the red cup. We'll all reach for the red cup. We'll have cravings that tempt us to drink from the tainted water of all the idolatries and all of the shallow hopes and all of the false securities and all of the, the crazy images that are constantly being pumped through the pipes of our city into our lives. We'll just drink this stuff and we'll get sicker. And God does not want that. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. St. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, says that the glory of God is a human being fully alive, <laughs> filled up with the power of God to face any circumstance. That's the glory and joy of God to see us living like this. And so I pray you are becoming someone like this. 
by the choices you're making, the way you're opening yourself to him. I pray that you are becoming somebody who takes in daily with humble, joyful wonder that by his grace, we who had fallen over the rail have been lifted up above it and now elevated to sit in the presence of Christ himself. We have been chosen, adopted, forgiven, commissioned now to go help other people find the water of life. Please pray with me. Lord, we remember the words that you spoke long ago to a woman at the well in the city of Sychar. You said everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will not thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So fill us up, Lord. Help us to drink in the glories of your redeeming grace that we might be people who overflow with that grace and can share water with those who thirst. This we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. amen.